Good morning, church. How you guys doing today? Good morning. Good morning, everybody hanging out with us online. If you're new here with us at MCC, like Kendall said, grab one of those connect cards, fill that out. We'd love to be able to help you get connected to this crazy faith family that is MCC. Um, I just want to tell you, man, thank you for being here, right? Like you drove on a vehicle that runs on gas, most of you, to get here. So thank you. Uh, like I, and I know some of you, before you even ask, we are thinking about getting the bus ministry back going. We'll coordinate. We'll get you guys picked up. We'll get everybody here if it starts going up crazy, like $7, $8. We'll, we'll see what it goes. But seriously, um, obedience requires sacrifice. And I just say thank you. Seriously, you're watching online. You, didn't, you, you, know, you saved gas money. Uh, you're in here in person, though, man. And I believe there is something special about being able to gather together with God's people. And we're going to be diving into that today. Today, we're on part two of a series called Peaks and Valleys. Now, I want to bring you up to speed so you don't feel like you walked into a movie movie halfway when it's through, all right? So we're talking about this prophet. A prophet was someone who God would choose to be his mouthpiece to the people. Uh, most of the time, God would send a prophet when the nation was doing some stupid things. He'd say, hey, go tell them to quit doing bad things so they repent and come back to me. He sends prophet Elijah to do that very thing. The reason he had to send them is God had his chosen people from the nation of Israel. He's like, these are my people. And God said, I wanna be your king. I wanna, I wanna provide and protect and give you the security that you need. The people said, hey, we got a better idea. Why don't you give us a human king? We want somebody to rule over us and, and we'll see how that goes. And God goes, that's gonna be a really bad idea. Well, we'll let, let it see how it goes. And God sends David. David does an okay job. After that, uh, Solomon comes. And what we begin to see happen in this nation of Israel, they're in God's promised land, his, his protected territory. The sins that begin to walk in fathers happen to start running in sons. Things get worse and worse, and eventually God's nation of Israel divides into two nations, a southern king or a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah, each with its own unique and individual kings. In the southern kingdom, they had some especially wicked kings leading up to a guy named Ahab. Ahab was an absolutely terrible king. Like this is this is true infamy. He he is known as the worst king that the nation of Israel had ever had up in that point. And that's just not something you want to be known for. One of the reasons he was so terrible is he had a really bad wife. All right, fellas, there's a little lesson in there. Um, you get worse. <laughs> um, so he, he, he made a bad choice. He, he picked a wife who worshiped a bunch of idols, uh, but they had created things that had these different poles that they would set up, um, kind of like almost like a totem pole that they would be what they would worship. They called them Asherah poles. They had God of Baal uh, and God, not Baal, like Baal of hay. It was B-A-A-L. And they had a God named Baal and they had a God named Asherah. And they, they thought that these gods, these created things would give them the prosperity and protection and provision that really only the one true God could give them. And so what God does is he sends this prophet Elijah into Ahab to say, listen, because of your wicked ways, because this whole, na- like now the new government religion of God's people is Baal and Asherah, these two fake idols, until I say it's gonna rain again, it's not gonna rain again. And for a God, or for a guy, Ahab and Jezebel, who worship the gods of quote-unquote rain and prosperity and everything else, that really fires them up. They get really angry. And so God's trying to protect Elijah. He says, Elijah, if you stay here in Jezreel, which was where their palace and everything, the point of power was for them, he said, if you stay here, they're going to kill you. And so he sends him out into the wilderness. He sends him down to this, this brook in this valley. He says, you're going to drink water from this purified water. And then I'm going to send Uber Eats in the form of ravens. And they're going to give you bread and they're going to give you meat and they're going to take care of you. He does that for a little while. Then Elijah goes and uh, he, he lives with this, uh, this widow and he stays with her for a little while. And then the word of the Lord comes back to Elijah. He says, all right, I've had enough. I'm ready to make it rain again. Go back and meet with, Eli- or meet with Ahab and tell him that we're going to see who's God is the one true God. We're gonna see whose God 
is really real. So Elijah's a smart man. He knows that if he goes and knocks on the door of the palace, they're just gonna off his head right there. He goes and meets with one of the only few prophets who are left, who's actually a man of God. He goes and meets with this guy named Obadiah, which again, we're gonna get to a lot of really potentially good baby names today. So there's a really good one, Obadiah. Um, that'd be a good one. So he meets with Obadiah. Obadiah says, okay, um, I'll set up a time for you and Ahab to meet. Ahab and Elijah meet. And Elijah says, here's how it's about to go down. You bring all your fake false idol prophets. You bring in all those prophets to Baal and Asher. Bring them both all in. We're gonna meet on top of Mount Carmel. We're gonna put two bulls up on an altar. Whichever God can make fire come down from heaven, that's the one true God. We talked about this last week to make a long story short. The prophets of Baal get around and they're chanting, screaming, yelling, cutting themselves eventually and everything else. Meanwhile, Elijah is just sitting over there just talking trash on him. It's a great story. First Kings chapter 18, go back and read it. Elijah's talking trash to him. He said, maybe your God's in the bathroom with a fan on. He can't hear you scream louder. They do that and they eventually give up. Then Elijah prays a 20 second prayer and the one true God sends fire down from heaven. All the prophets of Baal, they begin to flee down the mountain. Meanwhile, the nation of Israel, who was also up there gathered on the mountain, they begin to fall down on their face and, and repent. And then after their repentance comes rain. And God brings rain back on the nation of Israel again, which sidebar there, repentance always precedes rain. We want a God to, to allow the rain to come to nourish parts of our lives, parts of our country, parts of our city, parts of those things. There is no rain without repentance. Moving on, they go down the mountain and you would think at this moment, we've seen fire and we've seen rain. We have not seen James Taylor yet, but we've seen fire, we've seen rain. So old people in the room got that. The young people in the room are going, who's James Taylor? Does he play football? Um, this happens and what it, the, the, the story is crazy. It actually says that Elijah's up there on the mountain and it says he gathered up his tunic and he ran down the mountain and he actually beat Ahab who was in a chariot. And again, he's the king. So his chariot is probably fancy. It's like a Lambo chariot. He, Elijah runs down the mountain, beats Ahab all the way down there. And he gets down and you gotta think at this moment, like he's just had the moment where like, the he like heavens literally opened up. It started raining, fire came down from heaven. He's thinking my purpose in this life has just been fulfilled. God is using me as a prophet to turn the nation of Israel back to the one true God. It is unquestionable. There is no doubt. God just made fire happen. He just made rain happen. It's no doubt. And so he, again, is proven by where he runs to. He runs right back into the city. And the reason he runs back into the city is because he believes in that city because of what just happened, revival is about to break out. He's thinking, I'm gonna be able to rest now. I'm gonna be able to, after these three years of being on the run, after this crazy mountaintop moment, I'm gonna be able to kick my feet up, take a deep breath and just be a prophet who checks the little boxes and takes care of the things because we just want a mountaintop moment with God. But as we're gonna find out today, that's not what happens. What happens is we find this man of God, this prophet, we find him in the deepest place of depression and darkness that he had ever experienced in his entire life. And can we just pause right there and go, man, isn't that how life is sometimes? That not like, <laughs> I find myself sometimes just praying, praying, praying for God, God, give me a plateau season. Like take me up a mountain, just let me run, run me on parallel for a little while, 
All right? Now, I know parallels or ba- uh, I mean, plateaus are kind of a bad thing, but like sometimes I just pray like, God, I don't want a mountain. I don't want a valley. Just hit me with a plateau for like at least six months. Anybody else? You're like praying for a plateau? Right. But that's not how he works. For some reason, it's like mountain, boom, valley. You get one kid off into school. They're doing great. They're making good grades. And then you find pot under the other kid's bed, but still at home. You, you retire. You're like, I'm going to finally kick my feet up and we're going to be able to relax. And the doctor comes in and goes, it's stage four. You finally get that dream home. And then you lose the job that made you be able to afford the dream home. Even in my own personal life, I saw this happen. So uh, the church I was at before coming to MCC, um, I got oftentimes invited to, I wasn't the uh, lead pastor. I, I was a kind of associate pastor. And oftentimes I get invited to, to come preach on, on a main stage in a multi-site church, uh, six different campuses, uh, over 3,000 people. And I'm up there and I get invited to come and preach. And I preach what I feel like is a really, really good message. And again, us pastors, we kind of know the ones that work. Um, so just tell us they all work and we'll feel better about ourselves. Um, so I, I preach what I feel like is a good message. I pour my heart into it. it. It was deep out of some things that God was doing in it, even in my own life. Preach that message, uh, see people, great conversations afterwards, see people baptized, see good things happening uh, post-sermon. Uh, my boss uh, at the church invites me then to go out to eat with him and his wife, me and my wife. We go out to lunch after that. And what I didn't realize is kind of all this was a setup. There at lunch, he says, hey, I, I think that... Uh, it's time for you to step up and step into some new leadership roles. And so we want to promote you to, to leading the, the central campus here and to preaching on a regular basis. We're gonna promote you into this role. It's gonna come with greater influence, greater leadership. It's gonna come with a little bit of a pay raise. It's gonna be a, a good thing. And so I, I lead, and I'm completely blindsided of this, had no idea this was coming, I wasn't seeking this out, have that conversation. And I'm like, that's awesome. Like that's, that would be as a 30 year old guy at the time, dream job type of stuff, that's great. I would have never thought that this, this kid from a broken home of abuse and addiction from Clem, Georgia, would be able to be doing something like that. It was blowing my mind. And I get home, and I'm putting the dishes away in the dishwasher, and I get a call from an area code that I know my dad lives in. And they tell me that he has been shot and killed all in the same day. See, sometimes... It's not the crazy traumatic things that happen that cause us to go into these huge valley moments. Sometimes, see, we get on the mountains and we're like, oh, I can see how good it's gonna be forever. Because again, you get up top, you can see out, right? And you get positive, you get hopeful because you can see what everything is supposed to look like on the mountain. And then something happens. And sometimes it's not even something that's absolutely terrible, but combined with the negative thing that happens and the fact that you are looking way out into the future with all your hopes and all your dreams, it just continually pulls the carpet out from under you and the magic carpet ride seems to be over. I know I'm talking to a room with people in it who have experienced that very same thing. And I wanna talk to you about how we can find hope even in those valley moments through a story of a man of God who, like we talked about last week, was a man, a human, just like me and you. And I pray that today as we dive into his stories, you can find help because some of you in here today, you're maybe on a plateau. Some of you in today, you feel like you're on the mountaintop. You just got the job, life, babies, all sorts of good stuff happening, good things going in the right direction. And some of you today, I know understand my voice, watching online, you're in the valley. And you're saying enough is enough. I don't know how many more Sundays I can go. I don't know how many more weeks I can go. 
I want you to know that you've been prayed for specifically this week. I want to pray for you again now as we get ready to go into the word. Jesus, we need your help. I need your help. Thank you for getting us here, but I know you don't want to leave us here. So take us by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the preaching of your word, wherever it is you want us to go. I can't surrender for my friends listening and watching, but Jesus, I pray that you would just allow them, maybe even in the quietness of their own seat right now, to whisper into you, Father, I surrender to whatever you want for the next amount of time I'm here. I surrender to how you wanna move. We love you, Jesus. Do what you need to do. In your name, amen. If you got a Bible, go to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. As you're turning there to 1 Kings chapter 19, I wanna ask you a question. Do you know the difference between a dumb person, a smart person, and a wise person? The, the difference between a dumb person, a smart person, a wise person is a dumb person, they learn from nobody's mistakes. Anybody ever been around a person like this before? Anybody ever be this person before? You learn from nobody's mistakes. I don't learn from my own, I don't learn from anybody else's. A smart person, a smart person will learn from their own mistakes. They'll make a mistake, they'll put the hand on the stove and go, that's a dumb idea, I'm not doing that again. An intelligent person, dare I say wise, brilliant. A wise person, they won't just learn from their mistakes, a wise person will learn from other people's mistakes. They'll go, I'll save me the trouble. I see what it did to you and they'll abstain or they'll make a choice. That's what a wise person does. And so today, the way we're gonna tackle this passage is by giving you an invitation to be wise. I'm gonna hopefully invite you in to the potential for this moment and for the rest of your life to learn from Elijah's mistakes. That's specifically how we're gonna look at this. To go, okay, I see what this guy did wrong. I'm gonna do everything I can to try to learn from what he did wrong so that I can avoid what he avoided and take the wisdom so the next time I'm in a valley, I can learn how to get out. And the next time I'm on a mountain, I can learn how not to go deeper into the valley than God would see fit. So let's tackle it. First Kings 19 verses one and two. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. All right, so she, he just gave her the instant replay about the bull and the rain and fire and all of that. He gave her the instant replay. And also side note, killing 400 plus of her prophets, which, sorry, uh, he also did that. He told her that and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. He's got details. Verse two, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods, which pause, didn't we cover that? Like, haven't we figured that out by now? Like, there was 460 praying to all your gods, your idols and everything else. And then one made fire come out of heaven on a drenched bull and altar. And then made it rain, something that hadn't done in three years. And we're still on gods, which just goes to prove you, go to show like, no matter what you do, how hard you pray, there are some people who just aren't going to get it. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely if today, or if by this time tomorrow, I don't make your life like one of them. That's her, her death threat. That Elijah, I'm gonna kill you, all right? Now, this woman must have really been something else because of what happens next. Elijah was afraid. Now, pause, wait a minute. This is a guy 
who spent, who went to Ahab and Jezebel and said, it's not gonna rain. And guess what? It didn't rain. Saw God move in an amazing way in that. Went out and got Uber Eats by Ravens, did all those things. When he was staying with this widow, her son got sick and died. Elijah resurrected a dead kid, okay? Fire from heaven, raining from the skies, killing 460 prophets. And Jezebel makes a death threat, guys. And he's like, oh no, God, we gotta get out of here. Like this guy who's seen God do all of these things, terrified by the wicked witch of the West. So he was afraid and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba, this out in the wilderness. So, so Elijah is up here in Jezreel. He runs straight down to the Southern end of the kingdom to Beersheba and Judah. And he leaves his servant there. While he himself, so he leaves his servant there. Then he himself, he, go, he leaves him, drops him off. And he goes a day even deeper into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. It's almost like, is this the same? Are we talking about the same guy here? Are we sure we haven't switched over to Elisha? Are we on the same fellow here? He says, I have had enough, Lord, which we, some of us have been there. I've had enough, I've had enough. He says, I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He said, I wanna die. I'm worthless. That's the translation when he says, I'm no better than my, my ancestors. All of his ancestors were worthless, miserable excuses for people to be in your family. He says, I'm ready to die. My life is worthless. He's ready to tap out. He's ready to give up. And here in this passage here, we see his first two mistakes. First mistake that he made was this. He burned himself out. He burned himself out. If you go back and you track Elijah's story, every time Elijah went somewhere, the thing that always preceded him going somewhere was God saying, go here. God would say, hey, go tell Elijah, or go tell Ahab and Jezebel, it's not gonna rain, he'd go do it. Then God would say, go out into the woods, hide there, I'm gonna send ravens, take care of you. He'd do it. He'd say, okay, the brook is dried up, now go live with this widow, he'd do it. Then he would say, hey, go back to Ahab, tell him to do these things, and he'd do it. The thing that's missing in this passage is God did not tell him to run the 150 miles south to the kingdom to go to Beersheba. He's burning himself out. He's sprinting down mountains, he's doing these miraculous things, He's got a full agenda. And what's happening here is there's this deadly combination and you've experienced this in your life of fear and fatigue. It is bad enough to just have fear, but when fear comes in with the one-two punch of fear and fatigue, what happens is oftentimes faith walks out. It's hard to have faith in God when you're both fatigued and you're afraid. And so what we see, even though this guy is a five-star general in the kingdom of God, even though he is a hero in the faith, this one little wicked witch of the West brings him a death threat and he is terrified. And a big part of the reason he's terrified is because it was just absolutely what he was not expecting. He was expecting the whole nation was gonna repent. He was gonna get a star on the walk of fame in Jezreel. Like he thought all these things were about to turn up for him. And it doesn't. He's burned out. The things I want us to, to get on this is, there's obviously a present enemy in the story of Jezebel, the false prophets of Ahab, but there is a behind the scenes enemy as well. Who's working the darkness and the shadows of his story and is also working the darkness and shadows of your story in your valley moments. And his name is Satan. And the truth about Satan is 
when our tanks, like physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever you wanna call it, when our tanks are the lowest, that's when he begins to get the loudest. His lies, his speaking in, once we begin to go down in energy and effort and our spiritual things go down, all of who we are begins to get low. That's when he raises his voice. See, in the same way, you know, you were watching, like, again, my kids, the things that they love to watch on TV, it blows my mind. It's not cartoons. They just want to watch stuff about animals and sharks and wildlife rescue. Uh, there's something about the kingdom of God and, and animals and the animal kingdom that just blows their mind. One of the things that I have learned through watching this is that predators can smell fear on their prey. And Satan is very much like that. But instead of how a predator smells fear, Satan smells fatigue. He knows when you're tired. He knows where you're worn out. He can look at your life. He can see you say out, he hears you say out loud, oh man, it's been a hard day. I just need to grab a drink. He can, say, he can hear you snap at your kids when they ask you a very simple question. He sees what goes on in our life. He picks up on all those little intricate details. He studies your game film, friends. And he goes, you're fatigued. Here's when I attack. So we've got to ask ourselves, Am I really tired? And, I, and I'll, I'll take us there. Are you really tired? Not like, hey, I'm, I, had, I didn't sleep good last night, but if you haven't slept good in weeks and you feel like it's more than just I'm physically tired, like my soul is tired, can we just have a little bit of group therapy in the room and just go, hey, raise your hand if you're tired. Like, I'm just tired, right? So if, that, if that's you, and again, it's okay. It's okay to admit that and be honest with that. God needs you to be honest with that. You don't have to pretend like you aren't. You've got to ask yourself, why? And you've got to ask yourself, why, until you get down to a root issue. Some of you, your root issue is you're a people pleaser. And so you'll say yes to a thousand different things so that nobody ever gets mad at you. And you're saying yes to this and yes to this and yes to this. And your calendar is full of a whole lot of good things, but you're sacrificing the great thing and you're burning the candle at both ends. And you've got to figure out why you can't say no. Because you're going to keep saying yes until you figure out why you can't say no. Why you're afraid of what may come from that. The other side from the burnout part is we believe in the myth of work-life balance. That's a myth, friends. There's no such thing of work-life balance. Balance, one of my mentors told me, I was saying, I'm just trying to, I'm struggling with this because ministry is tough in this. I'm going, I'm struggling with the work-life balance, you know, thing. He said, there's no such thing. Balance is a terrible target to aim at and you'll never hit it. He said, he began to give me some examples. He said, okay, imagine being at church. And it's a, a crisis moment at the church that requires somebody, you know, a kid at a local high school commits suicide and we've got to rally around our community to do some things, plan funeral. They invite us to host it here. We've got to do all these things. And if I hit my clock and I go, oh, nope, I've spent more time at the church than with my family this week. Sorry, guys, somebody else preached the funeral. That's balance. And I leave. Or if there's a crisis in my family and one of my kids is in the hospital or breaks their leg or something like that. And we've got to go through therapy and all these different types of things that figure this out. If I'm there and I go, oh man, sorry, I've taken way too many days off. I got to go get back to the church stuff. Balance is a terrible thing to aim at and you will not hit it. The idea of work-life balance is actually more rooted in Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. It has more in common with a yin-yang than it does with the cross. Look at Jesus's life. There was not work-life balance. There was health. He spent his time, he spent his days doing what was necessary for the moment. And we've got to be able to do the same thing to say, I'm going to, instead of aiming at balance, aim at health. I'm going to be a healthy employee. I'm going to have a healthy environment at work. I'm going to, when I'm there, I'm going to work as if I'm working to God, but I'm going to know that at the end of the day, I, I still have this family and I don't want to be a hero at work and a loser at home. 
So I've got to figure out something. And my solution to that, the only way I've found any sort of success is aiming at health and knowing that there are gonna be seasons where there is not gonna be balance, but being okay with that. Next thing that we see, there's a mistake that he made that I think we can learn from is he shut people out. Remember the part of the story, he, 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 first of all, I believe Elijah had going on in his heart and we didn't see it till this story. He had what's going on in his life. One of the things that we have going on in our lives a lot. You're in a room full of, you're a crowded room full of people, but you still feel what? Alone. And I think that, would been his, that had been his story already. He begins to verbalize it now. And because that loneliness has become so heavy, he begins to now leave his servant behind and isolates himself to a place of desolation. And the truth that I want you to see here is that when we are both depressed, when we are afraid, and when we are fatigued, it is almost impossible to tell yourself the truth. And this is why we have to have other people around us. This is why we can't just go to church with other people. This is why we have to be the church to each other. And I love being able to gather together and look out in front of, see all you guys smiling faces, all you people online. But I'm telling you, this for us as a church, this best happens in community groups. This happens in a place where we can know each other, where they, my, people have been around me enough to see my cues and to see my habits and to see me snap at my kids or be disrespectful and go, hey man, something's up. Let's go talk, let's grab coffee, let's figure something out. And that's the power that's bound up in the local church. And so we see this guy, Elijah is here. He is ready to give up on all of it. And the last point that I'll, I'll say that helps us in this, because we all have struggled with this to different and varying degrees, this anxiety thing. And we talk about this a lot. It's more play in our society than maybe even it needs. And it gets unhealthy. But here's a simple reality and truth is it weighs us down. Whether it's real or it's imagined, it is a burden. But this proverb offers us some help and this is why we can't go out alone. When you're in a place of anxiety and depression, do you know how often you're likely to speak kind words to yourself? <laughs> Very rarely, right? You ruminate on all the, it's all, I'm, I'm such a mess, such a mess. Screw that up again. Park your car in the driveway, put the truck in park and you're just like, man, is it even worth going in there? See, that's why we need each other, guys. And that's why, man, like, let us be a church that like, we're the kings of kind. Man, we, we, we just see people and we're just kind, like we're just lifting people up. Because look, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if everybody just had like a, a, a blue anxiety bubble over their head when they're really feeling anxious and we could just go pop it for them. Hey, you're doing a really good job today, man. You got clothes, pants on. How, you know, you're, I'm so proud of you. Give me a hug. Wouldn't it be easier if that was how it is? Look, what if this, how about this? Just assume they are, just assume they are. Cause listen, we've become experts at being able to hide how anxious we really are. So look, give the kind word and hear me. If you see a teenager, any, literally any teenager. They can look like the captain of the football team, most uh, confident person you got. You see any teenager, especially ones in this church. For the love of God, if you pass a teenager in one of the halls of our church and you don't say something to them that lifts them up, we have a problem. Talk to them. I'm glad you're here. I don't know your name. I'm glad you're here. Proud of you. I'm, way, way to show up at church today, man. Way to go. I'm glad you're here. Study after study comes out and shows 
that the level of anxiety that middle schoolers and high schoolers are facing is what would be 50 years earlier, what we would say that person needs to be institutionalized. And that's why the rate at which our youth are contemplating or committing suicide is higher than it's ever been. So what if something as simple as a kind word in a hallway could change something? I believe that God would wanna do that in us. And so I believe that maybe we should open our mouths. Don't be afraid. They may have a phone in front of their face. That's okay. Still talk to them. Still talk to them. So this is where Elijah is at. He's depressed. He's despondent. He wants to kill himself. Now I want you to see God's grand solution to this suicidal prophet. Back half of verse five. So he, he, he's passed out. God sends an angel. Angels are always on assignment. He sends an angel to touch him and said, get up and eat. An angel shows up. He's depressed and suicidal. First two words out of his mouth, get up and eat. How many of you wanna bet this is a man angel? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So he says, get up and eat. But, but, but track with me here because this is tender love and care. Here's, here's what I mean by that. God's grand plan for his suicidal prophet was not, hey, quick, send some people to invite him to church. Hey, quick, somebody send a Max Lucado book and give it to him while he's out there. Hey, let's send some people around him to lay hands on him and to pray. Send some people to throw a potluck in his honor because of how appreciated he is. God's grand solution to his depressed and suicidal prophet was two meals and two naps. Which again, some of you, that's all you need to hear. Go eat some good food and go take a nap. All right, keep going. It gets awesome from there. He looked around and there by his head was some bread. Carbs, yes, Lord. Some bread, <laughs> hot bread too. Uh, some hot bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and he laid down again. Nap number two. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. What's happening here, and I want you to see that because this is oftentimes how we deal with people who are depressed or maybe even potentially suicidal or anxious in the church. Oftentimes, we, uh, Christians, we have this bad habit of when somebody is depressed or when we feel like we're depressed is we treat it like it is only a spiritual thing. And so we come and we start spiritually troubleshooting the depressed person and go, hey, have you prayed enough? Have you confessed any sins? Have you pleaded the blood of Jesus over your life? Have you tried fasting? Are you in a small group? Do you attend church often? Have you done these things? Where are your kids at? Like we go through this troubleshooting list. But guys, this story proves to us sometimes what someone needs is not a sermon. What someone needs is not a lecture or you to give them a book. What sometimes people need is a steak dinner with Oreo cheesecake at the end of it. In Jesus' name, what sometimes people need is a nap. And, and here's why, let me explain this to you. It is, it is making God smaller to say that the only thing that God has reign and rule over in my life is my spirit. No, friend, you are mind, you are body, and you are spirit. And God didn't just create those three things, he is redeeming those things. And, and all of those different levels have a play in who you are as a whole person. And so God will come on the scene sometimes and say, hey, you need a nap, you need some cheesecake. Sometimes God will say on the scene, hey, you're eating good. We need to get in the word. All right. Sometimes we've got to come on the scene and say, hey, go for a walk. Sometimes we'll come on the scene and say, hey, you're depressed. It's because you're isolated and you're lonely. Go get some friends. 
See, we have a multifaceted God who loves us in a multifaceted way. And so when we try to, whether it's treating our friends and family and helping them through whatever is going on and weighing them down, or even for your own self, don't just make it one or the other. Don't just go, oh, it's a spiritual thing, go to church. Don't just go, it's a physical thing, take a pill. And don't just go, hey, go get counseling and talk about it. It could be a little bit of everything, or it could be one of one thing, but don't just put God in that box. So he comes on the scene, this is his grand solution. And then we pick back up in the story because the angel there, he says, I want you to get up and eat. And from here in verse eight, he says, he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by the food that he ate. He traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now you're not looking at this on a map, but what just happened is he went 150 miles south <laughs> and the angel kind of like, here, eat some food. And he's like, um, <clears throat> you sitting down? All right, let me, I hate to break this to you, but now we're gonna go 260 miles north on foot. <laughs> and so he travels 40 days, 40 nights up Mount Horeb. And this is where our story kicks back in, verse nine. So there he's up on Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai, same mountain Elijah. I mean, uh, Moses got the 10 commandments on. So there he went to the cave and spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him. So this is now God speaking to his prophet again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And remember, when God asks you a question, it's not because he's curious <laughs> or he needs information. He asks, he's asking you a question so you hear what you say. All right, this is how he, Elijah responds. <laughs> See how much humility you can find in here. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord, God Almighty. That's Elijah's way of saying, I did what I was supposed to do. Which in that, like what causes us so much of the anxiety and the, like the, the frustration. A lot of times, man, I went to a counselor one time and I, I, I came in and uh, it was after my dad passed away and I was trying to get some help through all this other type of stuff. And, and he said, how do you feel? And I said, frustrated. He was like, you feel frustrated because men don't want to say any other emotion. You just have a bad time at describing how you really feel. And then he gave me like seven different ones to pick out. And I was like, it's that one, that one, that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. He's like, but you just put all these in a pile and you call it frustrated. And that's what, I, uh, that's what Elijah is here. He's going, I did what I was supposed to do. I held up my end of the deal, God. Why didn't the people repent? Why didn't they turn? Why am I still on the run? I wanna put my feet up. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. That's kind of his way of wink, wink, nod, nod. You haven't held up your end of the deal yet. The Israelites have rejected you. Now it's about everybody else. Again, classic pride. I'm gonna tell you how good I've done. I'm gonna deflect how bad everybody else has done. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. Now underline this if you're a type of person who underlines in your Bible. I am the only one left. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. All right. God's response. Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now, between that period and that T, what you don't see is Elijah actually listening to God and going to do that. So he doesn't do that. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, and the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Contrast the three with the fourth. Now, Elijah, here's the gentle whisper. Now, again, I like to direct this movie in my head. And so this is how I would direct it. 
You remember when the people fell on their face and said, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. If we were hearing that in Hebrew, they would have been chanting Elijah's name. Elijah means the Lord is God. So there's this whole nation of Israel on the top of Mount Carmel when the fire comes down and everybody starts chanting, Elijah, Elijah. Then Elijah runs for his life. It's here on this mountain. And how cool it would have been if the gentle whisper just said, Eli, Jah, Eli, Jah, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Now again, that's just how I would have wrote the story. But he shows up in the gentle whisper and now Elijah obeys. He heard it. He pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then the voice said to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And again, like with your kids, I've told you guys this story in my own life. If one of my boys is being disrespectful to their mama and I hear that, I go, try again. And it's not because I want you to do what you just did. I'm giving you a chance to correct what you just did before the wrath of God comes on you. And when God asks him a second time, what are you doing here? <laughs> it's not because he was hard of hearing the first time Elijah said what he said, but look at how Elijah responds and see how much you can find this different from the first time he answered this question. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Do you notice any differences? There weren't any. And, he, and here's where we find Here's where we find the third mistake he made. The third mistake Elijah made was that he left the truth out. If you got a Bible, an actual Bible or your phone Bible, pull it up and go a chapter backwards. Remember how I told you to underline the fact that he was saying, I am the only one left. Grab your Bible and, and I want you to, um, to go and look down at Eight, verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 22. So look at 1822. So the scene here in 1822 is Elijah on top of the mountain. He's on the top of the mountain there, surrounded by all the prophets of Baal. And look what he says, verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Okay, so this isn't the... This wasn't the second time he's saying it here on Mount Sinai. This is actually the third time that he's gone, I am the only one left. Now, back up a few more verses to verse 13. Same chapter, 18, 13. Go to 18, 13. This is a conversation between our boy Elijah and Obadiah. All right, this is before he ever shows up to see Ahab and say all the things he said so far. Obadiah says this to him in verse 13. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and I supplied them with food and water. Now, had he been, true or false, had Elijah been zealous in keeping the commands of the Lord? True. Was he the only one left? unequivocally false. He had been told by Obadiah, listen, dude, I am a prophet of God and I'm a good one. And Jezebel was trying to kill all of us off. I took a hundred of them, put 50 in one cave, 50 in another cave, and I've been giving them snacks and water for the last few months. 
he chooses to overlook that, gets on Mount Carmel, I am the only one left. Which is his subtle way of saying, if it's going to happen, it'll happen through me. I'm the only hope. And the pride in this, and what's so crazy about this story is how idolatrous what he is saying is. It's his way of saying, I am the Messiah. I am the deliverer. I am the source and the solution of this whole entire problem. This thing is called, what he's doing here, a psychologist and Trent would call this confirmation bias. It's our tendency to cherry pick information that confirms our existing beliefs or ideas. See, Elijah picked up on, I, I would be willing to bet that they're in the brook getting Uber Eats from Ravens. This is where this idea from the enemy slipped in that I'm the only one. He's out there lonely. He's just sitting there praying. Like when the birds are usually here by now, you know, I'd really like to talk to them. You know, he's just out there by himself and, and something's sneaking in. My man, I just feel like I'm so lonely out here. I'm just alone. He comes in, Obadiah's like, listen, dude, we got, we got, a, we got a hundred plus one. We got 101 prophets. He gets on Mount Carmel. I'm the only one. He shows up to God in the cave two times. I'm the only one. See, so much of the anxiety and the depression that I think we face and the struggles that we face in life is because of this. We, we pick and choose the things to make the story true, that we wanna be true. Now, let me ask you a simple question that I probably know the answer to. How many of you just get enthralled? You just love being wrong? Nobody. How many of us really enjoy being right? Yeah, here's why. We have this propensity to be the center of our own universe and nobody just wants to go like, I like being wrong. We think how something is and we go, I'm gonna look for the things to prove what I say and what I think is actually right because I wanna be right because who wants to be wrong? The problem is that is when we do that and we do confirmation bias and pick and choose to prove our things, the thing that you miss out on is this crazy little thing called truth. What actually is going on because you've chose to overlook the different things. It's the spouse who can say, I'm just so, nobody cares and nobody ever does anything to help around here. It's just frustrating. And the only things that they see that happen in the home are the things that prove that point. And they can conveniently overlook all the other things. It's the person who thinks when they go to work, my boss just has it out for me. And they see all the things he does to other people and he's got favorites for everybody else but they failed to overlook all the times that they were late and he just kind of gave them a wink, wink and a nod and said, hey, just get after it. We can overlook all those things, but we'll find the things that we wanna find. That's what Elijah is doing here. And what's so dangerous about this is it, it helps us turn the dial up on the lies that Satan tells us. Again, the Bible says that he is a father of lies. That's his native language, that's his native tongue. So when we begin to speak lies about ourselves, we are actually turning his dial up. We are becoming an echo chamber for the lies of Satan in our own life. And that's why that's so dangerous and that's why so, that's so detrimental. And so my encouragement to you is, friend, please, for the love of all that is pure and holy in this world, do not let Sunday be the only day that you are getting preaching. Some of you, God may never call you to put a microphone and preach from stage, but by God, you better, and you have to start learning how to preach to yourself, to be able to speak the gospel truth into your life against the lies. That's why David in the Psalms, he, he, one of my favorite ones, he, he comes in, we, the whole song that we sing called 10,000 Reasons, where it goes, bless the Lord, O my soul. 
that's, that's written out of a Psalm of David going, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul that is within me, we will bless the Lord. It's David, he's not talking to God right there. He's not talking to himself. He's talking to his very own soul and saying, listen, we will bless the Lord. And for, for us, this is why I'm leaning into you kind of hard damn a little bit less of counselor in the reclining chair talking to you with a pipe. This is me more football coach in the locker room trying to get you to get fired up a little bit in this is you've got to say to your depression and your anxiety, your days are numbered. Now, some of you, and I'm praying for you that your days of anxiety and depression being numbered, you'll experience a day in this life on planet earth where you are free from that fully. But hear me, you can still with boldness and confidence preach the gospel proclamation that your days of anxiety, worry, and debilitating depression are over. Because friend, if you are in Christ, that means there's gonna come a day when you stand on the golden shores of heaven and all of it is gone. It fully is numbered. And hopefully that day is not your death day when you cross over into life with Jesus, but friend, it is numbered. The word promises that there will be a day when we stand before God and we are entering into this place where all sadness is gone, that every tear will be wiped for our eye, that we will stand before and the only tears we will cry in those moments are tears of joy. So your depression is numbered. And no matter how dark it may get in this world, how painful and bleak it may seem, you've got to preach that to you. Everything that I would give you from a sermon standpoint on Sunday is just a little bit of stuff for you and the Holy Spirit to take home and allow to be what adds to how you should already be preaching to yourself. The story keeps going. The Lord said to him, <laughs> he's doing a whole lot of running around. Go back the way you came. With some of you, that's your answer out. Everything that got you in this, do the exact opposite in the opposite direction and you'll probably find healing and hope. Go back the way you came. Go to the desert in Damascus. Then you'll get there. You can go anoint Haziel, king over Aram. He's telling him his plan now. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nishmi. Again, if you're looking for baby names. King over Israel and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat and Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. God's way of saying, hey, I, I actually really do have a plan. And he says, Jehiel, he tells him, hey, all the things that you wanted to happen, the reform and the revival that you wanted to see happen, I still have a plan, Elijah. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel. And Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. This is his way of saying, I'm gonna bring repentance. Everybody who continues to follow the false gods, they will be dealt with. He says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. Stop saying you're the only one left. You don't know everything that I have in store. All whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Next mistake that we can't make that Isaiah did, or Elijah did, is we can't put God in a box. See, the, the, what happened here is Elijah is not despondent and depressed and suicidal because God's plans failed. Elijah is in this place because his plans for God failed. And many times that's where we find ourselves of going, God, here's how it should be. Here's what should happen. A equals B equals C. And this is how things should flow. But I'm telling you, friend, I've seen this in my own life. Every time that you think God is gonna show up in a whisper, he'll show up in a whirlwind. Every time that you think he's gonna show up in a fire, he'll show up in a whisper. That's just kind of how he does things. He says, do not put me in a box. And what's crazy about this story, on the very same mountain, he had showed up to our guy Moses in all of those things. When Moses was on the Mount Sinai, he got the whirlwind. He got the fire. He got the earthquake. 
And God was in all of those. So it's not saying God is never in the fire, never in the earthquake, never in the whirlwind. He's saying, I will be to whoever I need to be, whatever I need to be. That's why he chooses to come in this moment and say, for you though, I will be in a gentle whisper. I will be in a still, small voice because it is only through the still, small voice that you'll be able to lean into me and understand that what I'm really after is my people becoming near to me because you cannot grow near to God and not be miraculously changed. And everything that he does here, it points to Jesus. It points to who he is and what he's doing in our lives. That there on the cross, Jesus takes all of the punishment. Jesus takes the whirlwind. The earthquake happens the day that the cross happens on the Good Friday, Jesus is being crucified. There's literally an earthquake. He takes all the wrath and the judgment of God so that now you and I can get the tender whisper of a father who whispers into the ear of each and every one of us. It's not over. You're not alone. I'm here for you. I'm here with you. We'll get through this. If there's breath in your lungs, there's still hope for you. I am working all things together for the good of someone like you who loves me and I've called you according to my purpose. You are not junk. You are not used. You are not worthless. You are my child. And the only reason that father can whisper those things into our children's ears, into our very ears, is because the moment that his son was crying out on a cross for that fatherly attention, because of the full weight of our sin, our shame, our mistakes, our failure, our everything wrong, even as Jesus cried out, Father turned his face away so that he could look to you, he could look to me. And because of the resurrection, he could say, your ears now work. You can hear me call your name. You can hear me even in a moment like this, even in a room like this, whisper, child, I love you. There is hope. This is a valley, but we will come out. You may walk through this valley of the shadow of death, but where death works, where death happens, our God proves on Easter Sunday that where there is death, there is resurrection. My prayer is that as you commune with him today, that you see what, what it took for that very Jesus to go to the cross, to go to what he went through so that you could be able to hear the whisper of God drawing you in and drawing you out of whatever you may be in. To walk with you and to guide you through the valley. Jesus, we thank you for your love, your mercy and kindness. It has never failed and it will not today. Move in the hearts, minds, and lives of your people. Move them to the steps that they need to take to you, even if it's to sit down, to rest, to nap, to eat. Even if it's to get counseling, let them get the counseling. Even if it's to see a doctor, let them see the doctor. Even if it's for them to get into a group, let them get in the group. Father, please let them not believe the lie that they've got this on their own. Please let them, like Elijah, not believe the lie that they're the only one left, that they're the only one. Draw them to you. 